you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis, the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Genesis is the very first book uh, in the Bible, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that I mentioned just a second ago, uh, page 8 is where you will find uh, today's text. Shay mentioned earlier that we're beginning to, uh, today a new series uh, about the life of Abraham that we're calling Faith and Fulfillment. Uh, and so between now and the end of August, we'll spend almost every single week in between Genesis 11 and Genesis 25. And we're going to look at the life of this man of faith, the one through whom God chooses to establish a great nation of his people. I've been really looking forward to this series um, for, for quite some time, actually, and, and here's why. If your main familiarity with Abraham comes from growing up in the church and children's Bible stories and vacation Bible school, things like that, maybe you sang a song about him that for some reason that I cannot understand to this day is like the Christian version of the Hokey Pokey. <laughs> Don't know why we needed a Christian version of the Hokey Pokey, but apparently we did. Um, Father Abraham had many sons, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, shake your head, turn around, sit down. I don't know why that became a song, but it, but it is. I, I sang it growing up. If that's most of what you know about Abraham, or if you look at Abraham primarily as a, as a hero of the Bible, or if you're not familiar with Abraham at all, then what I anticipate for you in the coming weeks in this series is two things. That you will be completely scandalized, and that you'll be deeply encouraged. Completely scandalized and deeply encouraged. And you'll be scandalized because if the, if the primary way that, that you read the Bible, that you read Scripture, the way that I think a lot of people tragically miss the purpose of Scripture, is to look at these main characters as the heroes and try to emulate their lives, you're going to be horrified by what portions of their lives actually look like. You're going to hear things in this series that make you uncomfortable, especially if your mom is in the room and sitting next to you. You'll be uncomfortable when you hear some of this. And you're going to see the faith of this man called the man of faith. You're going to see his faith falter, not once, but actually many times over. As that realistic picture comes more into focus, it's going to reveal that the story of God's people from the very beginning that there was a people of God is about the faithfulness of God. It's a story about God's faithfulness. It's about God's redemptive work, sometimes through the very active participation of his people and sometimes in spite of those very same people. And therein lies the encouragement that we find in the life of Abraham. Because if God can set out to fulfill his promises through Abraham, then he can also bring his promises to bear in you and in me, and he can bring his promises to bear through you and through me. And indeed, he has done that, and he is doing just that. And so we'll kick things off in Genesis 11. Uh, I'll start in verse 27, and then I'll read through chapter 12, uh, verse 3. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. 
But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change and enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So just in these few minutes we have this morning, let's talk about the two different pieces that we find here in this passage, background and blessing. Background and blessing. So first, a little bit of background. The opening line here in in Genesis 11, verse 27, these are the generations of. That's actually like the, the main refrain of the book of Genesis. Throughout the book of Genesis, that refrain appears eight times and really ties the different pieces of this book together. The first time that it appears is all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So God creates all that is, including the pinnacle of his creation, which is Adam and Eve. After Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. Seth's line eventually leads to Noah. Noah's line through one of his sons named Shem eventually leads to Terah. And that's where we pick up the story, where we picked it up today in Genesis 11. Now, when we get to this part of Genesis, there's a significant change that's taking place. We're we're 11 chapters into this book. We're 11 chapters into the scriptures. But those 11 chapters have included many, many generations, and at a minimum, thousands and thousands of years. When Genesis reaches this point, however, the narrative slows down. And relatively speaking, it slows down to a halt. And for the remaining 39 chapters of this book, the story is focused only on four generations that span around 400 years. So to borrow some imagery from from Star Wars, this is like coming out of hyperdrive. You're in hyperdrive and all, all you can really discern is just kind of blurs of light flowing past you. Now all of a sudden you come out of hyperdrive, you can discern and, and see all the individual stars and planets and galaxies. Pay attention when scripture does this because it means that something really significant is taking place. And it's not that the, that the first 11 chapters are insignificant, quite the opposite, but this is a turning point, right? Where, where chapters 3 through 11, and if you're familiar with Genesis, you, you'll know this, where chapters 3 through 11 are dominated by chaos, and they're dominated by divine judgment, the fall of, of humanity into sin, banishment from the Garden of Eden, the flood, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, which then results in the dispersion of humanity that sought to create its own kingdom rather than to live in God's. Here we see God's response to all of that chaos and turmoil. Through the generations of Terah, and specifically through Abraham, God is going to redirect the history of humanity. This one man, through this one man, this one family, God is going to bring redemption, he's going to bring blessing into the chaos of the world, and it's going to combat the brokenness, and the fracture of sin. So Genesis 12 is a hinge point 
of God's redemptive work. It is one of these beautiful but God moments and one of the earlier but God moments that we have in our Bibles. A scholar named Bruce Waltke puts it this way. He said, God's promise to establish his kingdom through his grace that overcomes human sin is the governing theme of Genesis. It's the governing theme of Genesis. So this is a story from beginning to end about the faithfulness of God. It's about his unbelievably gracious promises and then his persistent and redemptive work to fulfill those promises. And to make that point even clearer as we come across different parts of the story in later chapters, these verses as an introduction highlight and they set up a few key things. So for one, Abraham is a pagan from a pagan family. Ur, in what is present-day southern Iraq, where Abraham is originally from, and then this other city, Haran, where he relocates temporarily, those were the two primary centers of worship for the moon god in ancient Mesopotamia. So most scholars believe that that was a significant part of this family's religious history and religious practice. They were worshipers of the moon god. So this wasn't an exemplary man. This wasn't a God-fearing man when God called him and promised him all of these blessings. In fact, nowhere are we given a reason that God chose Abraham other than that he just did. We also learn in these verses that Sarah, she's called Sarai at this point, is barren and has no children. And that heightens the drama that's going to unfold in future chapters. How is God going to make a great nation from an old man and his barren wife? For Sarah, this would be a major source of shame, as it would be for, for any woman, especially in the ancient Near East. And so one scholar says that, that barrenness is really the equivalent to hopelessness. He says that it leaves this couple with no power to invent a future for themselves. But if you know the story, that doesn't mean that they're not going to try to invent a future for themselves. And in fact, we're introduced to the first of their attempts to take matters into their own hands in these verses. And his name is Lot. Because Abraham and Sarah are childless, their orphan nephew named Lot has really become the front runner to be the heir of this family line. And as we go through the story, Lot will factor in into this narrative in a few key ways as the chapters unfold. But we will very quickly come to find out that Lot is not God's answer to a family line for Abraham. And then lastly, what we see in these verses, Abraham is a lot slower to step out in faith than we might originally think. As you read it, it can sound like God called Abraham while he was in Haran. But in, in chapter 12, verse 1, when God says, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, where is he talking about? It's not Haran, where Abraham and his father and his wife and his nephew have been sojourning for some time. It's Ur. It's there, or you would never refer to a place that you're sojourning as your place of your kindred, the place of your father's house, or your homeland. So Ur is their original homeland. Abraham is called by God when he lives in Ur, back when he lives there. And he doesn't go right away. At least not all of the way to Canaan. He goes some of the way. He and his father and his wife and his nephew, they go some of the way, but for some reason we never find out, they stop in Haran. And only after his father dies does Abraham go the rest of the way. When it says in chapter 12, verse 1, that now the Lord said, that phrase right there, now the Lord said, it's actually better translated, the Lord had said. As in, God had actually said this to Abraham a long time before while he was still in Ur. 
So I don't want to take away anything from Abraham. He's still a man of faith. He ultimately steps out in faith and he follows God and follows the promises of God. But he doesn't do that immediately. And actually, initially, he's, he's like one who Jesus will speak about centuries later. The one who says when they're called to follow Jesus, first let me go and bury my father. The one who, in a really kind of crazy way, Jesus says is not fit for the kingdom of God. So the people of God, when they are established, are established through a man who Jesus says centuries later in his initial response would not be fit for the kingdom of God. So all of that background, the 11 chapters of Genesis, these initial introductions to key figures of the story, they set up this hinge point of God's call and God's blessing on Abraham. And so second and lastly, let's just talk a little bit about that blessing. It's into the, the chaos of this world fractured by sin and people scattered across the world after the disaster of Babel that God chooses this one man and this one family. And it's, it, they are going to be the source through which God brings blessing to cure that curse of sin. You may have heard it as we went through it earlier. There's a progressive build to this blessing that works its way outward. So first, Abraham himself is blessed. God's going to bless Abraham. He's going to make him into a great nation. According to standards of the day, a nation would be great if it had a large population, if it had a large territory, and if it had some kind of character that distinguished it, that set it apart from the other nations around it. And what we'll see in coming chapters is that all of these are part of God's promises to Abraham. He's going to have more descendants than he can count. He's going to have prime real estate and a lot of it. Land that was in that day and remains to this day some of the most sought after and hotly contested real estate of the world. It shows up in the news all the time, even in our day. And they have a distinct spiritual character that sets them apart from the surrounding peoples and nations. From there, we see Abraham's name will be used as a blessing. So God will bless Abraham, then his name will be used as a blessing. When God says, you will be a blessing in verse 2, he's saying that Abraham's name is going to be synonymous with God's blessing. And people are going to say things like, may you be blessed as Abraham. May I be as blessed as Abraham. At this point, and maybe you notice this, maybe it's been driving you nuts, I apologize for that. His name isn't Abraham yet. Uh, his name when we meet him in the story is Abram. I refer to him as, as Abraham um, throughout, really, because, because that's who we know him as, and that's who he's becoming. And we'll get to that part of the story in, in a couple chapters. But here's the reversal that's taking place when Abraham's name is used as a blessing. The folly of Babel that happens just before this, the folly of Babel is people trying to make a great name for themselves. The blessing of Abraham is God making his name great. And that sets the pattern up for God's redemptive work. When we try to save ourselves, when we try to make our own names great, it ends disastrously. But if God makes your name great, if God is the one who makes your name great, that is where you are blessed. That is where you experience blessing. This blessing then keeps progressing outward. Abraham's blessers are blessed. And in that, we see God's personal active involvement in all of this. He's saying, I, God, will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the one who dishonors you. So God is personally concerned. He's fully vested in this man and his welfare and bringing about these promises. The outcome is not left in any way to fate 
or to chance. And those who bless Abraham, they are going to experience that personal blessing from God as well. On the other hand, those who dishonor him. And notice it's not even people that that curse Abraham outright. Even those who dishonor him are going to experience the curse from God. And all of that builds then to the end of verse 3. In Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And if this has never occurred to you before, or even if it has Be reminded and renewed and encouraged in this. This is our heritage, church. This is our heritage right here. This promise made 3,000 years ago is the reason that you and I are in the room today. Actually, more than 3,000 years ago. More like 4,000 years ago. Long time ago. It's the reason that you and I are in the room today worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there might be in this room, maybe, not likely even, but maybe one or two people who could trace their ancestral lineage to Abraham and to this family. But nearly all of us in the room have descended from one of the other nations that were scattered around the world after Babel. My family, uh, at least on my father's side, is from Armenia. At various points throughout antiquity, that's where the Hittites were. And if you know anything about the Hittites, that is not a good nation to be against the people of God. It's the kingdom of Ararat, which was a contemporary of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, It's where the Persians were at one point. I don't know what mix of that exactly uh, my ancestry and my family is, but either way, it's not part of this family. Definitely not part of this family. And initially not part of, or recipients of this blessing. You trace out the rest of the story, and not only the book of Genesis, but really the entire Old Testament, and nearly all of us in the room would find ourselves on the outside looking in. But from the very beginning, from the very call of the very first person of the people of God, we find that that God is not a tribal deity. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's the father of all. And so Abraham's line, through all of its high points, through all of its low and and wicked points, where even at times it seems like there is no possible way that God can redeem this and bring about his promises through this family, all of that will lead to a stable in a little town called Bethlehem. And there, the man Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is born into Abraham's line. And through his perfect life, through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus opens the kingdom of God to people from every tongue and tribe and nation. How do we enter that? The exact same way that it began with Abraham. Faith. Faith is all that is required of Abraham. It's all that is required of you and me. Faith in the promise-making God of heaven and earth. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Genesis 12 is God preaching the gospel to Abraham before he even knew what the gospel as we know it was. This is the gospel. This is our heritage. This is our hope right here in Genesis chapter 12. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I wish I had more time. Let me close with three important things that we should learn from this call of Abraham. Number one, you are simultaneously small and significant. We tend to to misread scripture 
by seeing ourselves as like the principal character in the story, we insert ourselves into the story as the main character. So a common reading of, of this passage would be to say, well, Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing, and I'm like Abraham, so now how am I blessed in order to be a blessing? Actually, it's a valid question. I think it's also a valid application. Only, though, if you first see where you and I really are in this story. You're not Abraham. I'm not Abraham. Actually, we're not even part of his family line for nearly every single one of us in the room. We have no ancestral claim to this family and to this blessing. We were once separated from it. So we first have to see ourselves as those families of the earth that God's going to have to do a lot of miraculous work to get to. See your smallness in that. You're not Abraham. Then see your significance. Because you and I and our presence here this morning, our worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, that's evidence of God's faithfulness. You and I are part of those families of the earth that through Christ have been blessed. So God has made good on his promise and you and your life and your presence in this room is a flesh and blood testament to that. Number two, and it flows from this first one, you are neither a pawn nor the point. You're neither a pawn nor the point. That's true of Abraham. He's not the ultimate point of the story, nor is he a pawn in it. It's likewise true for all of us who are in Abraham. We matter to God. We're not some kind of cog in a, in a cosmic machine. But this blessing from God is never meant to terminate on us. Right? So God doesn't look at us as, in this utilitarian way and say, you're only good as, a, as, as like a conduit or cog in a machine for me. At the very same time, as I've heard one other person put it, we're not cul-de-sacs. We are conduits. And so God's blessing continues to advance. It's, it's advanced all the way up to us and, and swept us up in that and it continues to advance through us going forward. And the last thing, faith is easy and faith is hard. Faith is easy and faith is hard. Why is faith easy? It's easy because God's promises are so disproportionate to the step of faith. I mean, did you feel that when we read this text? His promises to bless Abraham and all the nations of the earth through him are so disproportionate. It so outweighs the risk that it feels like to step into the unknown. What risk is it really if God says that he's going to bless you and bless all of the families of the earth through you? And what risk is it for us when Jesus says, follow me, if we know that all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him? And yet, as I know many of you will attest to, faith is hard. It's hard to cut ties with what you know. It's hard to do something of which God, one we cannot see, is the only guarantee of a good outcome. So as we study the life of Abraham, I'm going to call you to look not only at Abraham, look through Abraham. And through Abraham, see our faithful, redemptive God at work. Where you will be deeply encouraged is to see that we have so much more than Abraham did. We have that many more centuries and generations of God's faithfulness in our rearview mirror to look back on and draw faith from. So though faith and whatever decisions you're facing in your life, wherever faith is required of you, which is really everywhere in your life, though that will feel like a risk, though it will be difficult to cut ties with what you've known, it's absolutely worth it because God's promises are so disproportionately bigger in the step of faith. The people of God are a people founded on two things. Promises of God and faith. 
So may you know and believe God's promises and may your faith always be in him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we look to you as the one who is faithful. And we're grateful, God, that Abraham, though he is the man of faith, though he is held up as an example in his faith for us to follow, that he's not so distant from us, that he's not so different from us. And we find in our own hearts, God, today, a a crazy mixture of faith being easy because we know that you are good and that you deliver on your promises and faith being next to impossible because we don't know what the future looks like and we wish we did and we wish that we were in your, we wish that we were God. We wish that we knew all these things. And so I pray that you would meet us where we are this morning, that you would stir in us a renewed heart of faith, that we would see that we would see more than than the need for our own faith, that we would see your faithfulness, your dependability, the promises that you make to us, that we would put our hope and our trust in you. We look to you, Jesus, now in our weakness as we come to this table. Strengthen us again by your grace. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.